Revelation chapter 3, our text is the Lord's message to the church at Philadelphia in Asia Minor in verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, and he that has the key of David, he that opens And no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I, will, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man may take thy crown. Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. There are many different ways that life provides us a kind of moment of truth. At school, a quarterly or semester-end report card often tells parents a different tale than the one their children had been telling. My report cards are routinely littered with a kind of educational graffiti like Jason could do so much better if he would just try to pay more attention. My mother said, I have to sign this. What should I even say to that? I said, say Jason might pay more attention if they would just try to be more interesting. I don't know why teachers didn't like me so much. On the job, you expect a annual or semi-annual raise, you can also expect that to come with a time of blunt evaluations of your performance. You might be doing this well, but you need to start doing that better. And Revelation chapters 2 and 3, seven of the Lord's churches are offered an opportunity to evaluate their progress. The Lord speaks lovingly and bluntly to his assembly, offering Praise where praise is due and criticism where criticism is due. So far, we've seen Ephesus was praised for standing fast in doctrine and working hard, but criticized for abandoning its first love. Smyrna was offered encouragement to remain faithful to death in the face of persecution. Pergamos was issued a frank reprimand for allowing wicked teaching and worldly behavior to continue within the assembly unchecked. Thyatira had become tolerant of false teaching and immoral behavior, accepting it just because apparently it was the course of least resistance. At the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 3, the church at Sardis 
receive their report card with uncompromising clarity due to its spiritual apathy and lack of watchfulness. Sardis, Jesus said, was both dying and dead and just didn't know it yet. All along this process, the Lord Jesus has not merely evaluated those assemblies, but he also inserts frequently messages identical to what we just read in verse 13. Anyone who has an ear needs to listen to what the Lord says to the churches. Churches, plural. We get to look at the progress report of these seven assemblies and see ourselves reflected in their grades. Often, the lesson we learn by comparison is difficult because we look a lot like these churches. You know, maybe Smyrna didn't get a reprimand, but the rest certainly did, and we need to learn from it. In our text this morning, we read about the Lord's Church at Philadelphia. The only other of these assemblies that the Lord declines to reprimand in some way, this church receives only praise. And so, with the others, we learn by our similarities to their failures by the church at Philadelphia, we're given an opportunity to compare ourselves to a positive standard and see how we measure up. This morning, what we're going to see in this text is though Philadelphia is insignificant in the eyes of the world, its worship of Jesus, dedication to the gospel, and expectation of eternal blessing makes it a church Jesus praises. And so I want us to consider three admirable qualities of a church Jesus praises. A church Jesus praises sees him in his greatness in verse 7. A church Jesus praises sees the gospel as their calling in verses 8 and 9. And a church Jesus praises sees beyond the present and to glory in verses 10 through 13. Now just a word about the city of Philadelphia. We're talking about the one in Asia Minor, not the one in Pennsylvania. Philadelphia was named after these ancient Greek brothers, uh, Eumenes and Attalus, and, uh, who were so dedicated to one another that Attalus actually became known as Philadelphus, the man who loves his brother. And this city was given that name, the city of brotherly love. The city itself was nothing remarkable. It was not a well-defended military outpost. It wasn't a, a highly populated city. It was subject to frequent earthquakes and existed on the edge of active volcanoes. Because of those earthquakes, many of the residents had fled the city and actually found it safer to live out in the countryside using the volcanic soil as uh, being an especially fertile place to plant vineyards. While the modern city of Alasahir is found at this location, the ancient city of Philadelphia, we know where it's at, but it has hardly been excavated because there's just not much to see. Most likely the church at Philadelphia would not have been a large congregation. It would not have been highly influential in the world's eyes. It's even described by Jesus in our text as having a little strength. It's weak. 
the location was not ideal, the budget wasn't impressive, the congregation wasn't large, the prospects were limited at best. But if the vision of a church is based on its size or its building or its location or its budget, that vision is going to fail. To be a church Jesus praises, a congregation has to set their sights and their vision on Jesus and his glory. And so first, see, a church Jesus praises sees his greatness. Verse 7, the Lord begins this message by presenting himself in a way that he will be recognized, but also in a way that he demands to be seen. Verse 7, the angel, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, These things says he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. Now I want you to remember how Jesus introduces himself to the other churches that we've already looked at. He gave John, if you remember, he gave John a vision of himself back in Revelation chapter 1 and then he addresses these churches by repeating a portion of that vision that he had given to John. For example, in his vision in Revelation 1, John saw that Jesus had seven stars in his hand. And then up in verse 1 of this chapter, Jesus introduces himself to the church at Sardis. I'm the one who holds the seven stars. That kind of method changes with this message to Philadelphia. A church Jesus praises apparently does not need a miraculous apostolic vision and then application of that vision in order to know Jesus. They already knew Jesus by the description in verse 7. They know he is holy. He that is holy is literally in Greek, hohagias, which is the holy one. Jesus is addressing and proclaiming his deity here. He is God in the flesh. This is a title that was given to God in the Old Testament. Isaiah 40, verse 25, God asks, Who will you compare me to? Who can be my equal, says the Holy One. By the way, that's the same Isaiah who saw the Lord Jesus on the throne, high and lifted up, and the angels were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Later on, that divine title is attributed directly to Jesus. In in Acts 3, verse 14, the apostle Peter declared to the residents of Jerusalem, you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted to you. The idea of this word holy is the idea of being separate. This is his, for lack of a better explanation, his divine otherness. He's separate from sin. He is separate from sinners. The creator is separate from his creation. The church at Philadelphia recognized what all Christians must recognize. God is the Holy One. Jesus is God, and so Jesus is the Holy One. He is pure, spotless, perfect, undefiled, separate from sinners. In the gospel, when the Lord Jesus 
was abandoned by many who claimed to be his disciples. He looked at his closest disciples and said, are, are you going to leave too? Will you also leave? And Peter answered for them and said, where, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know you are the Messiah, the Holy One of God. A church Jesus praises knows that he is holy. The church Jesus praises also in verse 3 knows that he is true. Again, the literal rending here would be the true one. Jesus is authentic. He's real. He is, he is honest. He is the genuine article. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. He is dependable. He is the reliable source from which all truth flows. You know, the Apostle John ends his first letter by pointing to Jesus and saying, this is the true God. This is eternal life. For a church like this, which is keenly aware of its weaknesses, they need to know Jesus is true. Who he is, is genuine. What he says is honest. What he promises it's going to come to pass because it flows out from the true one. So they know Jesus is the holy one. They know Jesus is the true one. They also know that he is completely sovereign. Completely sovereign is actually kind of redundant. Sovereign means all-powerful. You are either all-powerful or you're not. Nobody can be just kind of all-powerful. Jesus is either completely sovereign or he's not sovereign at all. Listen to how he introduces himself at the end of verse 7. He introduces himself as he that has the key of David. He opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. When Jesus says in verse 7, he's the one who has the key of David, that is a a reference to an Old Testament picture. First, you have to remember that God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 was that a distant son of David would sit on his throne and establish his kingdom and house and throne forever. So the reference to David here is showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of that messianic promise. He is that promised Messiah King who would come. Now in his life, David looked forward to that promise, but David, you can read, he goes on about his life doing his own kingdom building. And in Isaiah 22, verse 22, we're introduced to a man named Eliakim who was assigned the responsibility and authority of manning the door of King David's throne room. Listen to what Isaiah 22, 22 says about Eliakim. The king, I'm sorry, the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder and he shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Does that sound familiar? Because Eliakim was given the key of David, Eliakim had the authority to determine who was allowed into the presence of the king and who was denied access to the king, who was shut outside. He was the doorkeeper. But now, 
Jesus is describing himself as, look, the son of David has come. King Jesus is establishing his kingdom. And who has the keys? Who has the authority to determine whether or not you get access? Well, it's not trusted to some servant named Eliakim. King Jesus has the sole authority to grant or deny access to himself. When you think about this, Revelation 1.18, Jesus described himself as the one who has the keys of death and hell. And now in our text, he declares he's the one with the keys to the eternal kingdom. Listen carefully. There is no person in this world who can deny you access to King Jesus. You do not have to rely on a pope a priest or a pastor to give you access to Jesus, King Jesus himself decides who has access to him and the church that Jesus praises gladly affirms that authority resides in him alone. The church Jesus praises declares him to be the holy one. They proclaim him to be the true one. They rejoice that he is the sovereign king in ultimate control, that all ability and authority rests in him. A church Jesus praises sees him in his greatness. Second, a church Jesus praises sees the gospel as their calling. Verses eight and nine. Verse eight, Jesus tells this church, I, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door and no man can shut it. For you have a little strength and has kept my word and has not denied my name. Back in the days of Illinois Baptist College, can we call those the good old days yet? The college had a kind of slogan, a catchphrase, which was preparing you for an open door of ministry. The goal wasn't to open the door. The goal was to prepare students for the door that the Lord Jesus would open for them. Listen, since Jesus gave the great commission to his churches, since Jesus knows their works and praises them for their obedience to his word, since Jesus is the one who opens doors that no one can shut, it seems to me this church is one that is dedicated to declaring that gospel and carrying out that commission. This picture of an open door is found other places as well. And it's always in in connection to proclaiming the gospel in the New Testament. In in Acts 14.27, Paul and Barnabas returned from the gospel work and it says they rehearsed all that God had done for them, how he'd opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. In Colossians 4.3, Paul prays that God would open a door for us to speak the mysteries of Christ. And 2 Corinthians 2.12, he says, I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and the door was opened unto me of the Lord. Now, I know we just said in verse 7, this open door is Christ maintaining access to his kingdom. And now in verse 8, I'm trying to connect that open door to proclaiming the gospel. But you have to understand, those are not contrary at all to one another. When the Lord Jesus is pleased with his church and opens a door for the proclamation of the gospel, 
that declaration of the gospel is an open door to his kingdom for all who will repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. So as we get to sneak a peek at Philadelphia's report card, how do we stack up? Do we see the gospel as our calling? Do we demand the gospel from the pulpit? Do we live the gospel in our lives? Do we declare the gospel to the world? Listen, it is more than just what's happening right here. The open door of ministry isn't here. It's when you go out there. When's the last time that you proclaimed the gospel of Jesus? I don't mean just talk about Jesus or say something churchy. I mean proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Do you tell people that everyone is condemned under God's wrath because our sin is an act of rebellion that has offended his righteousness? And he's going to dispense justice for that rebellion with certainty. What we deserve is death and hell. But that Jesus, God in the flesh, lived the perfect and sinless life, the only man ever to maintain God's standard of obedience. And he was unjustly condemned to the cross and yet willingly laid down his life for sinners. And having absorbed the wrath of God, Jesus rose from the dead, proving not only that the Father was satisfied with his sacrifice, but also that he has overcome eternal death and hell. And we can have eternal life through repenting of our sins and believing in him. The only hope that we have is turning away from sin and turning in faith to Jesus to believe in him, to trust him, to put our confidence in him, to put all our hope in him. That message is our calling to go into the world declaring the gospel and making disciples. And if we declare the gospel, what's going to happen in verse 8 Even though we're weak, we can keep his word, the description is, and not deny his name by declaring the gospel. We can be a church Jesus praises. The greatness of a church is not determined by our willingness to come and listen to the gospel here. It's found in our obedience when we go out and declare the gospel out there. And if we won't do that, because it might be unpopular or it might be uncomfortable. If we won't do that, we can't be a church Jesus praises. If we will do that, even when opposition comes, and it will come, we can expect to be protected by him and to be praised by him. Listen, we are weak, but he's not weak. By faithfully declaring the gospel of Jesus, you're trusting God's power for that declaration. We're showing loyalty to him through our obedience. We're, we're displaying our, our trust in his providence. You can see Philadelphia was a, a faithful church to the word, and it's evident in verse 9 that opposition did, in fact, come. But by trusting in God's providence, they could expect vindication would also come. Look at verse 9. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. 
Behold, I will make them to come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. The opposition in Philadelphia was apparently the the Jewish community who condemned themselves by rejecting the very Messiah that God had promised to them. Jesus says, look, they say they're Jews, but they're not Jews. They say they're my people, but they are not my people. It's a lie. They were in such opposition to the Lord's church and the message of the gospel that the Lord's church declared that Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan. Yet Jesus simply tells his church, vindication is coming. There's a, there's a guy lately who's tried to make a lot more out of this verse than what it says. Look, you have to understand, this is not making it out so that the Lord's church is the queen of heaven and all people are going to come down and worship Jesus and us. That is not what this verse is saying. But Jesus does say to the church at Philadelphia that the Jewish troublemakers who claim to worship God are someday going to fall on their knees in recognition Look at verse 8, admitting the Lord's holy love for his church. This is another allusion to the Old Testament. Several places, especially in Isaiah, the Lord promised the nation of Israel that the Gentile nations that were oppressing them would someday bow down in front of them. For example, Isaiah 45, verse 14, he says the nations will come to Israel bowing down before them and confessing, God is indeed with you and there is no other, there is no other God. Who's being worshipped there? God is. Who's being worshipped in our text? The Lord Jesus is. In fact, a great reversal has taken place as the Jews who would, it's, it's the Jews who would be made to fall on their knees and recognize the Lord's love for his church, which is made up of both Jews and Gentiles alike. While this is a great act of vindication for the church at Philadelphia, it is for the glory of God alone. To make that as clear as possible, we need to simply remember Philippians 2, 9 through 11 which speaks of Jesus and says, wherefore God has highly exalted him, giving him a name above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is why we proclaim the gospel, because everyone, everyone, is going to fall to their knees declaring the lordship of Jesus to the glory of God. This is true, Paul said, for those who are believers and already in heaven, for those who have died in unbelief and are already under the earth, in in hell is the euphemism there. And, And it's true for the rebellious sinners who were on earth at this time. Every believer and unbeliever on earth will also kneel down to him. They will either willingly fall to their knees confessing the Lord Jesus as Savior to the glory of God's love and grace or they will be forced to their knees recognizing the rebellion against the Lord Jesus suffering an eternity in hell and thereby glorifying God's justice and wrath. 
Listen, my friends, I implore you to obey the gospel because one day you will fall to your knees before Jesus, seeing him for who he is. You will glorify him one way or the other. A church Jesus praises sees him in his greatness. They see the gospel as their calling. And third, a church Jesus praises sees beyond the present to glory. In verses 10 through 13. Listen, we are... We are finite creatures in terms of time. We can remember the past. We can have expectations of the future, but we always live in the present, right? As Annie says, tomorrow is always a day away. So we live in the present and we only live obediently in this moment if we recall what, the, what God has done in the past and what God promises for the future. Verses 10 through 13 include some future promises which the Lord intends to make a a present difference for this church that he praises. First, he expects his churches to live presently with the expectation that God is going to intervene for us. In verse 10, because you have kept the word of my patience, I will also keep you from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to them to try them that dwell upon the earth. I know it is sometimes tedious to preach a text by repeatedly explaining what it does not say. But I think that's a required again here because as most of you know, I think the Question of the timing of the rapture in Scripture is intentionally vague. The Bible doesn't spell it out because it's not something we need perfect clarity about. I do believe that the best understanding is that the Lord's people will be raptured at the end of the tribulation that is to come. We'll have plenty more to say about it as we go through Revelation. And frankly, I don't feel like it's my calling to try to convince anybody one way or the other. Listen, if you trust Jesus and all your hope is in him and you expect him to return someday, I'm good with that, even if you're a little weird about how you think all that's going to play out. But since this verse is frequently used to argue for a rapture that happens before the tribulation, let me just address that for a moment. It does. It does say, I will keep you from the hour of temptation. And it seems to be talking about the coming tribulation because this temptation is described as what shall come upon all the earth and all them that dwell on the earth. This is describing a universal time of trouble. So the pre-tribulation rapture position argues this is a promise of Jesus to remove his people from the hour of temptation. But is that what it says? I will keep you from the hour of temptation? How does the word keep get changed to remove? I don't know. To give you an idea of how strange that is, the word keep appears earlier in this verse. The word keep has already been used in verse 10, earlier. Can you imagine Jesus praising the church at Philadelphia at the beginning of verse 10 because you have removed the word of my patience? This word keep 
or kept. Both times it's used is the Greek word tereo, which means to keep, to observe, to guard, to watch over, or protect. Frankly, this verse doesn't conclusively argue for the timing of the rapture on any position. Because I will admit it is possible that the Lord will keep or preserve his people by removing them if we can also admit that it's actually possible and I think more likely. This means that he will not remove them, but he will keep them. He will preserve them. He will guard them. He will watch over and protect them during this coming hour of trial. Now, let's, let's try to look at what this does actually teach. Regardless of your position on the rapture, the Lord is telling the church at Philadelphia that they have kept, they've guarded his word in the past and should continue to do that in the present because they can expect that he's going to keep, he's going to protect and guard them in the future. A church Jesus praises lives faithfully to his word because they see beyond the present to the future promises of Jesus. Now the expectation of that future does include the return of Jesus. Look at verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast that no man may take thy crown. The word of God teaches repeatedly that the stance of his people in regard to the return of Jesus is to hold it with this confident expectation. Just like this church in Philadelphia about 2,000 years ago were called to live in the expectation of Christ's return, we also live in that expectation. If we don't live that way, if we don't live as if we expect Christ to come soon, The Lord tells us what will happen in verse 11. Trusting his imminent return causes us to hold fast to what we have, but not trusting his imminent return would be to let go of what we have. They had been faithful in the past and, and should continue to be faithful. In Matthew 24, a sermon on the end days, the Lord gives a parable like teaching at the end of the chapter, saying, The blessed servant is the one who is found working when his master returns. But an evil servant is the one who says in his heart, my master delays his coming and begins to live wickedly because of it. We should always live in the expectation of Jesus' coming, not assuming that it's so far off that we stop being faithful and not assuming that it's so close that there's no more work to be done. At the end of verse 11, he says, failing to live in the expectation of his return will result in losing our crowns, not losing our salvation, but a loss of rewards at his coming, a reward for obedience. The simple message is to live in the present with the expectation of God's promised future. It's as if Jesus is telling this church of Philadelphia, look, I know you're weak. I know it's hard. I know you've been faithful. Don't stop. Stick with it. I'm coming soon and I'm bringing your reward with me. And at least a portion of that reward is described in verse 12. Him that overcomes, 
Will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of the heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. There's several precious promises in verse 12. And for time's sake, I'm just going to try to simplify them. To be made a pillar in the temple of God and to go no more out. I think both of those are particularly poignant to this church at Philadelphia and the history of that city. Remember the frequent earthquakes? How most of them had moved off into the countryside? Well, when those earthquakes hit, sometimes the only things left standing were the pillars that that hold up the, the columns or the colonnade for the roof. This is a picture, especially to them, of the stability that they have in Christ, the security that they have in Christ. Jesus is saying, look, you're you're not going to be shaken anymore. You're not going to have to go out because of the Lord's faithful love for his people. No one is ever going to have to abandon the city of God and look for safety somewhere else. The other promises are very similar when you look at verse 12. They'll have the name of God written on them, the name of the city of God written on them, and the name of Jesus written on them. I can't resist picturing that like an ID tag you'd put on one of your children's valuable possessions. The church that Jesus praises lives so faithfully in expectation of glory that it's like you could take the church at Philadelphia and turn it upside down and read a tag that says, hello, my name is child of God. If found, please return me to the city of God into the possession of the son of God. This is a promise of perfect unity with the Lord. That's the reward that we get. Listen, can you be satisfied to serve him expecting a reward for him if that reward that you're expecting is him. Is that enough for you? Can you be satisfied with that? Because though the church at Philadelphia was insignificant in the eyes of the world, its worship of Jesus, its dedication to the gospel, and its expectation of eternal blessings makes it a church Jesus praises. Lord, help us that we could say the same thing about our church and that we could receive the praise of the Lord Jesus as well.